Hi, Gary Zacharias again with The Apologist Bookshelf. I'd like to look at a second book of Nancy Piercy's. I already covered Love Thy Body in a previous podcast. This is a book from 2015 called Finding Truth, subtitled Five Principles for Unmasking Atheism, Secularism, and Other God Substitutes. So she's saying that our worldview as Christians is the best worldview possible. Why? Because it matches reality. And it's not only true, meaning it does match what's out there in the world, but it's attractive because it gives dignity to human beings better than any other alternative. And so this is a book of how we wrestle with different worldviews, whether they're secular or world uh, worldviews from religions, how we deal with those, how we understand them, and how we can compare them to Christianity. So I, I would like to do the first couple of chapters of her book because it gives an overview of what she's up to. And she starts off, oh, by the way, some good people write some very positive things about her book. Uh, let me just give you a sample here. How about uh, J. Warner Wallace? He says, Nancy Piercy has done it again. She's written yet another important resource examining the importance of worldview presuppositions. She said, I wish, wish she'd been part of my investigative team as a detective. Says, uh, if I'd read this book as a young man, I think I would have been challenged to re-examine my views much earlier. Because remember, uh, Jim Wallace started out as an atheist. Lee Strobel says, Nancy Piercy at her very best, totally profound, persuasive, and yet practical. Read it with your highlighter handy. Uh, amen to that. Anyway, let's, let's take a look, though. She starts off, and she mentions at the very beginning, after her foreword, let me get to the opening here, she once gave a presentation on Capitol Hill talking about worldview principles, especially Christian, Christian worldview principles. And she says, during the question period, a congressional chief of staff stood up and said, you know, I lost my faith at an evangelical college. Wow. Not at a secular university or dealing with Capitol Hill uh, people, but at an evangelical, respected evangelical college. He said uh, he couldn't get the answers. He didn't think there were answers if a Christian school couldn't give him good answer, answers to his questions. And uh, so he just walked away. But after graduating from college, he discovered apologetics because that's what he needed. He wanted to hear Christian claims that used logic and reason. So he started reading C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer and Alvin Planting and William Lane Craig and a lot of others. And his final comment that she uses, <clears throat> he says, I studied my way back to God. And so that's what she's going to talk about in this book. Can we take a single line of inquiry, she says, to apply universally to all ideas? All these ideas out there that are clamoring, clamoring for our allegiance, that are yelling at us. How can we respond thoughtfully to all these different worldviews? And every time we have a new worldview, are we having to start and reinvent the wheel all over to deal with it? And she says, no. She says the Bible has a powerful strategy for critical thinking. And she starts it with Romans 1. That's what the basis of the entire book is going to be. She uses Romans 1. So where's the evidence in Romans 1? Well, Paul says we have evidence of God through creation. So not, not worrying about a holy book, just looking at creation. So things like the origin of the universe, uh, the fine-tuning, the fact that things like force of gravity and electromagnetic force and all these kinds of things have to be just exactly right. 
She uses uh, also uh, information from inside our cells, biological information. That's intelligent encoded information. DNA is like a software program. So where are we getting all of this stuff? It's got to come from an intelligent mind. And also the fact that we have a mind. We can think. We can feel. We can choose. We can... The first cause that got the whole thing going must have had a will as well. And so those are the things she starts with in Romans 1. She says, that seems pretty obvious. And if it's so obvious, she says, why in the world are we not full of a, a you know, the entire human race full of God believers? And she says, again, we go back to Romans 1, we suppress the evidence for God from creation. Romans 1.18, they suppressed the truth. Romans 1.21, although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. So she says, you know, the God that's revealed in the Bible is not popular today, not, not what we think of for spirituality. This is not some fuzzy, non-personal spiritual force, you know, the Star Wars stuff. Use the force, Luke. So it's it's not a fuzzy blob that we have to kind of guess at. She said it's a transcendent person that the Bible reveals. And guess what? This person has a moral claim on our lives. And all of a sudden we start squirming. We don't like that. And so we want to deny what we know is true, that there's a God. Well, how do we hide it? How do we deny it? She says we create idols to take the place of God. And she again references Romans 1, this time verse 23. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man and birds and animals and things like that. So what is the ultimate reality? Well, it's something for, for everybody. We have to have some kind of ultimate reality. But if we're putting anything ahead of God, that becomes our idol. So we make an idol out of the things of this world. So that's what she's going to focus on. She says the catch is, of course, idols have consequences. We get this tension and... What do we do? We end up becoming futile in our thinking, according to Romans 1. Uh, we become debased. We've got these counterfeit gods. We end up with dishonorable behavior. And all of this is contrary to what it really means to be human. And so now let's get to the part where she says, this is what I want to do for my whole book. She said there are five strategies from Romans 1 that we can begin to diagnose these idols. So this is what I would like to spend the rest of this podcast on, these five principles. Now, if you get the book, each one of these principles is a nice chunk of the book. It's a big chapter all by itself, and so it'll be developed. I'm just going to skim over them just so you kind of have a feel for where she's going in this book. So principle one, how do we, how do we analyze worldviews? Number one, identify the idol. And so anybody who rejects God has got some kind of idol, it's whatever they've put in the place of God. Now, it could be a philosophy, it could be a worldview, it could be people, anything. And she uses as an example materialism. So materialism is part of the created order, sure, but they've moved it from just part of nature up to the only thing to worship in nature. It denies the existence of anything beyond the material world. So it, it ignores God, the soul, spirit, mind, whatever you want to say just everything on this world. And so even reason can be an idol, and materialism certainly can be an idol. It, it, it replaces God. 
Okay, so that's principle number one. Find out what it is that people are worshiping. Principle number two, and this is the one I want to spend just a couple minutes on because it's, uh, it's interesting and maybe a little complicated, but she says principle number two is to identify the idol's reductionism. Now, that term reductionism, I'll get to that in just a second, but J.P. Moreland, who's a, a great writer, he's a great philosopher, he's a deep thinker, he said his favorite part of the book is this identify the idol's reductionism. And she says, uh, he says that anybody who knows anything about contemporary worldviews would acknowledge that this term, reductionism, is at the heart of Christianity's rivals. And so he really likes the book just because of this section here. So what's she talking about? Identify the idol as reductionism. She said, well, what it means is, look at the word, it means to reduce. You're reducing some something, a phenomenon, from a higher or more complex level of reality to something that's simpler, that's less complex, and usually what you do in the process process of doing this, you end up debunking it or discrediting it. So she gives three examples here. Here's one. Oh, Christianity is nothing but an emotional crutch. Well, do you see the richness of Christianity? Everything to do about it has been reduced to it's a crutch. And then you can just ignore it, right? Who cares about that? Here's a second example of reductionism. Your ideas, the things you're thinking about, that's just product of a chemical reaction in your brain. So all these wonderful ideas of God and the supernatural and our purpose of our life and where we're going and where we've been, all of those things just turn out to be chemicals sloshing around in our brain. Or here's the third example of reductionism. Living things can be explained solely by physics and chemistry. Now, that's a pretty low view of human life, isn't it? So it took all of these things that we think we have. They call them just illusions. You, you think you have a mind? That's an illusion. You think you have a soul that's going to live on after you die? That's an illusion. And so humans end up, reductionism reduces us to just biochemical machines. We're just walking chunks of meat. But she contrasts that with what the Bible says. There's a transcendent God. That's not reductionistic. That's big. And Christianity, Christianity offers a high view of people. We're created in the image of this transcendent person. We're, we're fully human. Okay, here comes principle three. Now, this is going to be the third part of her book. Test the idol. So now you've identified the idol. You probably noticed reductionism involved in it. Test the idol. Does it contradict what we know about the world? Does it clash with reality? So here's a key question. Is this particular worldview, whatever we're looking at, is it true? Does it fit with what we know about the world? I mean, after all, that's what a worldview is supposed to do. It's like putting on a pair of glasses that colors everything, and it says this is the way we think the world works. And she says, you know, every idol-based worldview is going to fail because it re leads to reductionism. So again, think about the example of materialism. Let's start that. Start with that. So there's her example of uh, worldview, materialism. Everything that exists is just what we can put in a test tube or what we can measure and weigh. Okay, now what does that do? That reduces people to just these biochemical machines. Well, can you do that? Can you just reduce people? Or is there a problem with that? Yeah, two words, free will. That doesn't fit in that idea of us just being biochemical machines. We 
pretty much agree or feel that we have free will. We have choice. We can make decisions. Oh, no, say the materialists. Those are just illusions. Oh, really? Well, but in the real world where we have to live, <clears throat> we have to make choices from the minute we wake up every morning. It's just part of life. So as even materialists recognize the problem, <clears throat> she gives an example of a science journalist, John Horgan. He reports that many neuroscientists reject things like free will and myths, but then at the end of his article he says, no matter what my intellect decides, I'm compelled to believe in free will. Ooh, he just tossed everything that he said he believed in, tossed in the wastebasket. She gives another example, a philosopher, John Searle. He embraces materialism, but he says we can't live by its principles. He gave an interview one time. He says the material view, right, a materialist sees the universe as just a big machine. All human action is determined. It's, it's just chemicals. But, he says, we can say, okay, I believe in determinism. He says, but the conviction of freedom is built into our experiences. We just can't give it up. If we tried to, we couldn't live with it. So he concludes, we can't give up our conviction of our own freedom, even though there's no ground for it. Well, there's no ground for it in his worldview, but he's, he says you can't give up that conviction of freedom. So this guy is trapped, isn't he? So we're back to that principle number three. Test the worldview. Does it con contradict what we know about the world? And the answer is yes, as this example. Here's principle number four. Test the idol. Does it contradict itself? So some worldviews, she says all idol-centered worldviews, fail that third principle. They don't match up with the external world. They're not uh, identical to the worldview. They collapse internally. They're self-refuting. Okay, well, here's an example. Somebody says, I'm a cultural relativist. You know, there's no universal truth. But what did they just do? They just gave a statement that made a universal claim. Oops, self-defeating. Well, what about materialism? It says thinking is just biochemical processes. But if that's the case, then ideas are not really true or false. So how would a materialist know that materialism is true? That's self-refuting. And she says Christianity offers a better example. Human reason reflects divine reason. All right, so there's principle number four. Here's principle number five. And we'll end on this one. Again, these five principles are what our whole book is based on. It's the backbone of our whole book. So principle number five. She says, replace the idol. So now you've looked at these different worldviews, these different idols. You've seen where they fail to match up to reality. You've seen where they fail to match up with their own ideas. They self-defeat. They self-destruct. So principle five, replace the idol. Make the case for Christianity. We need a biblical alternative to secular and pagan worldviews. And so she gives some examples of that uh, in her fifth section, how to make the case for Christianity. So the five principles that she comes up with from Romans 1, she thinks build a powerful case to show that these idol-based worldviews don't give adequate answers to all the questions we have. Where do we come from? Why are we here? How should we live our lives? What's the problem with the human race? How do we fix that? I've done some talks on worldviews, and so I'm familiar with what she's talking about here, and she's right. It's powerful. If we look at these other worldviews, Yes, Christianity does have some areas that we scratch our heads. We don't know everything. And there's some things going on that people can ask us and we can say, I don't know, I'm not sure. But honest to goodness, if they would match up their worldview 
and critique it the way they're critiquing Christianity, guess what they're going to find out? Christianity is far closer to reality. It's far less uh, of a problem when it comes to self-destruction. So those are the five principles that she's going to cover. And she says you can apply them in the classroom, in the workplace, or conversations with neighbors over a backyard fence. And so that's what she does in the rest of the book. She applies those five principles to the most widespread philosophies going on today. So uh, we're going to be bumping up against those philosophies. This is a good book to take a look at and give us some uh, tools to work with as we interact with others who maybe don't share our Christian worldview. Well, thanks for uh, joining me today, and let's do another podcast soon.